Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. FM, CJSW. Good afternoon. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary. Welcome to episode 18. On today's show, I'm rebroadcasting my conversation with two folks that I look up to a lot. Mitchell Gomez and Kristen Karras both work at Dance Safe, which is a nonprofit promoting health and safety in dance music and nightlife communities. We spoke late 2020 But I'm going to rebroadcast this conversation because I had a surprising amount of feedback when Stacey Marie and I talked about harm reduction in episode 15 of Rave Dad's Diary. I want to be clear, I don't promote or condemn substance use. But being immersed in the music industry, I understand that some people are going to choose to use despite the risks. So I want everybody to have access to unbiased information and services that support them in making safer decisions i love people who use drugs okay if you have feedback you can always reach me rave dad at cjsw.com you can also reach me in the booth 403-220-3991 and you should follow rave dad's diary on instagram at rave dad's diary I'm going to queue up this conversation with Mitchell Gomez and Kirsten Karras. Like I said, it broadcast last year, so keep that in mind when you hear us talking in any of the temporal realms. In 
Hour one today, we're talking about safer partying and the harm reduction approach to public health issues in dance music communities. Harm reduction is something we all employ every day, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Examples of everyday harm reduction practices include things like washing your hands frequently with soap and warm water, wearing a seatbelt when you're driving, and wearing a helmet when you're playing hockey. This line of thinking can be applied to social contexts such as parties, concerts, and festivals. My introduction to the intersections of harm reduction and dance music happened at Shambhala Music Festival in British Columbia. I remember someone there telling me that there was a booth at the festival scientifically testing people's ecstasy. And the people at this booth could tell you if they thought the sample ecstasy tablet contained MDMA. That blew my mind. When I found the bustling tent at the festival, which is operated by the nonprofit AIDS Network Kootenai Outreach and Support Society, or Anchors, I saw a scene that seemed very out of place at the rave. Inside the tent, rubber-gloved volunteers sat at a table peering into white dinner plates with very tiny piles of colorful powder on them. As I watched in geeky amazement, the Anchors volunteers carefully dropped single drops of chemicals known as reagents onto the samples. They made note of the subtle chemical reactions occurring, such as color changes and off-gassing, and then they discussed the results with their eager peer. Scattered on every surface in the Anchors booth was free, non-biased educational literature on safer substance use and safer partying. Some of the literature was designed to look like rave flyers and featured information about the effects and risks of substances like alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, MDMA, LSD, and cocaine. Like most people visiting the booth, I took one of each. One of each of the flyers. These eye-popping drug info cards and the drug-checking kits used by anchors at Shambhala came from DanceSafe, a U.S.-based nonprofit promoting health and safety within the dance music community. Founded in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1998 by Emmanuel Serifos, DanceSafe currently has chapters throughout the United States and Canada. I even helped form a chapter in Calgary, Alberta, called Calgary Party Safe. DanceSafe's bright yellow booths are a staple at EDM events in the United States. Their yellow-shirted volunteers provide a safe space to engage in conversations about health, drug use, and personal safety. DanceSafe also provides free water and electrolytes to help prevent dehydration and heat stroke, free safer sex tools to avoid unwanted pregnancies and the spread of STIs, free earplugs to prevent hearing loss, and plenty of fact-based, unbiased information on drug effects and potential harms to empower users to make informed decisions. In mid-November, I spoke via Zoom with DanceSafe's Executive Director, Mitchell Gomez, and Director of Operations, Kristen Karras. Mitchell is in Denver, and Kristen is in Los Angeles. We talked about what DanceSafe does now and how the organization is growing, evolving, and delivering important services despite the pandemic. Talk about what it looked like delivering harm reduction services a year ago, last summer. Can you take me to a festival, Kristen? What would my experience be like as a festival goer engaging with Dance Safe back in the day? Yeah, absolutely, Paul. So back in the day, you would be with your friends walking through a music festival, maybe wandering down vendor row, possibly starting to catch a med tent in your eye. And then you would see this 
bright yellow 10 by 10 pop-up with DanceSafe sprawled across it. At that 10 by 10 booth, you would find DanceSafe volunteers behind tables that displayed drug information, other health and safety literature, free external condoms, free disposable earplugs, water and electrolytes. And you would be able to walk up to that booth and start to engage with your fellow peers that were behind the booth. Uh, if it was your first time ever seeing DanceSafe, they'd start giving you a little intro to what DanceSafe is, who we are, what we do. You know, we're a 501c3 public health nonprofit that seeks to promote health and safety within the electronic music and nightlife communities. We are here to help you optimize your time and to have a good night out. And folks would then be able to ask questions about different health and safety topics that they were interested in. We are well known for addressing drugs and providing reliable drug information. And when allowed, we are also well known for providing drug checking services where individuals are able to bring their substances to us to learn more about the contents of the substance in question so that they have more information to be making informed decisions about their own mind and bodies. Mitchell, how would you characterize 2019 for DanceSafe? How are things going up to that point? Even up until last year, uh, growing would be how I would uh, sort of categorize things. Uh, you know, we've we've been expanding our services, uh, expanding the types of services that we offer, uh, really branching out into being, you know, more than just uh, drug checking, which is sort of what our reputation has been for a long time. Um, although uh, we've actually done more than that since the very beginning, but that's just sort of the been the dance safe reputation. Uh, but you know, even. Uh, even when we are providing drug checking services, I think that a really important thing to remember about the services is that they're not just the harm reduction services. They're also a really good way to reach people who might otherwise not be uh, receptive to drug education, right? You know, we're down here in the United States where we've been so, so heavily propagandized by drug war propaganda, just say no, dare style programs, uh, that even getting someone to accept you know, your accurate, unbiased drug information is really a challenge a lot of times because they're coming from this place of, you know, being told from the time they're 10 years old that, oh, if you smoke marijuana, you're you're going to develop schizophrenia and start using heroin. And like, and these are these are real things that are taught in like the American educational system. Uh, I don't I don't know what things are like up in up in Canada in terms of like, you know, early childhood drug education. Uh, but here it really is just drug war propaganda. It's not accurate. It's not factual information. Uh, and so drug checking is a really good way of overcoming that sort of resistance that people have towards accurate information. Uh, and that works even if we can't be doing drug checking at an event, right? People come up because they've heard about us. Uh, and even, even if that event, we aren't able to provide drug checking services, it still works as a way of, of uh, sort of opening that door of communication. Uh, the, the one thing I would like to mention uh, is that uh, in addition to reagent checking, DanceSafe is now sort of rolling out uh, FTIR drug checking. So the same sort of thing that you might have seen at, at Sham up in Canada. Uh, 
And so it's really an exciting time for, for drug checking services uh, between the sort of dis- distribution of these fentanyl immunoassay strips that has sort of come online over the last couple of years. Uh, the fact that that technology had to be developed is horrifying. Uh, fentanyl adulteration is a, uh, as somebody who really likes to avoid the word scary or like Russian roulette metaphors, uh, fentanyl has actually changed the dynamic of substance use in a way that's really scary. Uh, and so it's not propaganda to say that. It's an accurate statement of risk. Uh, and so, yeah, the development and distribution of, of, of you know, high-tech drug checking services, uh, particularly as states decriminalize, I think we're going to start seeing more and more drug checking services offered through things like county health departments, through needle exchanges, through safe use facilities. So people who might not have the interest or financial ability to access drug checking at music festivals uh, are going to have drop-in drug checking opportunities I'm pretty certain within the next year or two in the United States, that's going to be a thing where there's going to be places in some states where you can take your drugs in during regular business hours, uh, have them run through very high tech equipment and leave with a really good understanding of the risks of those substances. And that's really, really exciting and a major sea change in the sort of dynamic of the drug war in this country. Yeah. You're, you're mentioning, uh, uh, Canada's uh, approach to drug education, and I was uh, just taking a peek around the like a, a government of Canada website, and uh, it said if you have noticed that your son or daughter has a vast collection of glow sticks in his or her room, ask them where they got them and what they're using them for, and then let them know that you know what happens at raves and that you're aware of drug use at these parties. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's amazing. <laughs> Uh, so that means that glow sticks are the real gateway drug, right? That's right. Glow sticks. <laughs> We're all conditioned as a society by this abstinence-based approach. What are some of the reactions you get at the booth when you're introducing people to these concepts like drug checking for the first time? Uh, so, Paul, yeah, a lot of them look the same. They're like, oh, shit, like, what? Like, really? Like, you're willing to have, like, this, Are is this real? it's really common that we get asked if this is real. Like, is this a joke? Like people are thrown off because it's such a stark juxtaposition to the type of drug education that they've been used to in the past. Um, Another really common reaction that we get at the dance safe booth at times is a lot of gratitude. Like, thank you so much for being here. I had no idea that this information was out there. If I had known this information was out there, I would have been engaging in my behaviors way differently over the years. At least I can start now. Those are some of the common trends. Mitchell, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think to me, the most uh, interesting interactions have historically been with people who are not actually substance users, right? People who are substance users sort of absorb harm reduction pretty easily, right? This idea that like, oh, I'm like a rational consumer of a product and I've made a a sort of risk-benefit analysis because realistically, that's what most drug use is, right? It's a rational analysis of the risks and perceived benefits of taking this substance. Uh, But, you know, talking about drug checking with, you know, those 70 year old venue owners who own the ranch that the party's being thrown on, uh, or the local sheriff, right. Who you're trying to convince to ignore drug checking services. You know, we don't, we don't need, you know, we don't need like a written permission, but just like, you know, just pretend that you don't see this like 10 by 20, you know, cause the booth's 10 by 10 and then we'll often have drug checking sort of behind the booth. So just like ignore, you know, 200 square feet of space. And, you know, we can really help you reduce, 
you know, medical transports and adverse medical incidents. Uh, and the, the level to which people are often supportive of harm reduction once it's like properly messaged to them, you know, even these, you know, law enforcement or venues or the venue attorneys, right. Which is often sort of a, a tough stakeholder to, to win over uh, is always my sort of like favorite interactions, <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, those are the ones that sort of stick out in my mind is when, you know, the, the local good old boy sheriff in, in rural nowhere is like, oh yeah, like this makes sense. Like I can definitely leave that alone. Uh, and then you get to like do this thing. Uh, and yeah, it really, it, it really works out quite often in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, I think this would be important for the audience, if you could, uh, differentiate between, um, how uh, dance safe is different from on-site medical teams? How are they different, and how might you work together? Um, I would say, Paul, that we offer a very complementary service to what is already on site. DanceSafe is not a medical provider. We are not first aid. We are not where you go when you need a Band-Aid or an ibuprofen, et cetera, at a music festival. Uh, we very much are occupying that space of being a public health organization that in more sterile terms is providing prevention services. We are where individuals are coming to talk about their intended substance use and get information prior to ingesting a substance to help individuals uh, identify what is an appropriate substance perhaps for them to be considering in the first place, given what they may have been going on in their life. You know, the classic set and setting conversation, what an appropriate dosage might be. Maybe we have a couple come up to the booth and one half of the couple is really experienced with MDMA and they're a larger human. And um, there is another individual who is new and hasn't had the experience before is a little bit shy and they would like to start low, lower and go slower. We're really there to have the conversations with folks prior to them engaging in a health behavior or whilst they're in the process of having um, like engaging in a health behavior and a great way. And I think one of the best ways that we are able to work with medical providers is through our drug checking services. What better information could you ask for when you have a patient in your medical tent having an adverse reaction to a substance than to be able to have a service right next door where you're learning more about what your patient has consumed, um, especially given the fact that we are all operating during this time of prohibition where substances are not easily accessible and regulated. Um, we are able to provide them more information to better treat their patients. And as Mitchell referenced earlier in the interview, it gives us an opportunity to help decrease adverse medical incidences, overdoses, transports offsite, which is a win for all the stakeholders involved. So that gives us a pretty good idea of how Dance Safe was operating up until earlier this year. Now with the pandemic in full swing and festivals and music events on pause, what are some of the ways that you're continuing to deliver services? Great question, Paul. Yeah, I think that there's this huge misconception right now that because there are 
no or limited mass gatherings that suddenly DanceSafe has nothing going on. Honestly, I have to say that in my day-to-day work, I'm busier now than I was pre-pandemic. Um, recently, we have taken in a couple inquiries from events to have DanceSafe on site. So far, uh, to the best of my knowledge, as a chapter-based organization, we have only serviced one socially distanced outdoor event in New York. We had a couple other inquiries from events, again, for outdoor socially distanced events. However, they were not able to actually follow through with their events. Um, Though in those cases, I personally was having conversations with the event producers to bounce some ideas off of regarding ways that they could be helping their patrons uh, remain compliant with their COVID policies. Um, In addition to that, we created a program online called Party in Place, uh, which focuses on the topics of social distancing, mental and emotional health, and harm reduction for people who use drugs during this challenging time. Uh, It's started to come out and be discussed more that we are seeing disruptions in the drug supply, uh, which can cause different types or more frequent adulteration and misrepresentation. So we really wanted to make sure that we were putting out harm reduction messaging that was ever so slightly more tailored to the current uh, nature of the world. Mental and emotional health are obviously key. Uh, Humans are social creatures and we're having to um, be physically more distant, um, which I think is lending to the more social distantness. And we want to make sure people are equipped with tools. Uh, So for example, we had a great community supporter reach out to us to collaborate with us on an online event called Meditation in Place, you know, just a little play on the party in place where they had a sound bath that they created Uh, including a meditation Uh, that was with Sunrise Transparence. And in addition to that, there have been a couple online events. You know, we're seeing these online live streams taking place. We dabbled with that a little bit ourselves, but we have also been brought into online events where we continue to provide the classic DanceSafe service. So instead of there being a physical 10 by 10 DanceSafe pop-up booth, um, there's actually been a like virtual DanceSafe booth set up via Zoom or via a Discord channel. That is so cool. I love that you're just pushing on through and still continuing to deliver these really important services. Tell me more about your party in place initiative. Yeah, absolutely. So current initiatives and services include uh, disseminating educational materials regarding social distancing, mental, emotional health and harm reduction. We've primarily been doing that through our social media. Um, We also have on a couple of occasions towards the beginning of the pandemic teamed up with artists to host live streams that uh, helped raise funds for both artists and DanceSafe to persevere through some of these financially difficult times. Uh, We have put that a little bit on the back burner. Uh, We have found that they are very organizationally uh, demanding in terms of capacity. Um, However, uh, something that has really 
just kind of started up and we're looking to play more into is the provision of those of our services via a virtual DanceSafe booth. Internally at DanceSafe recently, we have um, created a COVID working group, which is comprised of both DanceSafe staff. I believe there is a board member representation as well as outreach coordinators and dance safe volunteers. We like to try to make sure that when we are engaging in our program planning, we have a number of internal perspectives. And within that COVID working group, we have started talking about not only providing the virtual dance safe booth when requested by promoters um, and to start offering that when promoters are reaching out to us uh, as something alternative to our in-person presence uh, especially in the case that their event may not be within our personal boundaries of what we have expectations of event producers for. But also we are starting to entertain the idea of having a standing day and time where folks could pop into a virtual dance safe booth, which is exciting. I don't have a timeline for you on that, but I can tell you that within the COVID working group and when I've been speaking with other volunteers about other in other meetings and stuff, that there is definitely a lot of internal excitement, which I hope to be mirrored by the community as well. That gets me excited. Uh, I'm just craving anything that feels like a festival. So drug checking booth or a a dance safe booth, I'm all for it. (laughs) Yeah. And I honestly, I think that right now, uh, for me, from an organizational development standpoint, we have a lot of really great opportunities to be making investments in shifting within the organization to meet the current needs. Now, and those shifts actually being sustainable and something we want to bake into dance safe in the long term. Right now, we're talking about hosting a virtual dance safe booth due to the onset of the pandemic, but that is something that'll long live after the pandemic's over and would be a great way for us to regularly engage our volunteers, uh, which would help with our retainment and our longevity and sustainability as an organization. And then obviously be able to be a resource to folks that might not live where there are dance safe chapters. We're only in so many places and resources can be difficult to come by. And it's just a really great opportunity to shift things up in such a way that we can also continue to do the same thing in the future as well. That's just a really great idea. And uh, so how are you using this, this uh, pause from the like intense festival production cycles to kind of get prepared for when things open back up again? (laughs) I think that we switched from like intense event production cycles to like intense internal infrastructure building cycles. Right now, I would say that First and foremost, my number one highest excitement at DanceSafe is that we are getting a new website. Our website, I can't put into words 
how I feel about it currently, but I can tell you that uh, I've been working with a web development team uh, that they're just really great. They love Dan Safe. They're part of the community. Uh, a, an additional web developer that's internal to the organization that they just fucking get it. They are a drug nerd themselves. They have a lot of history in the music scene, whether that's event production or running a Dan Safe chapter to really bring in the full perspective of all the stakeholders that would ever land on our page and i'm really excited about us bringing the dance safe website into the 2020s and making it more mobile friendly to be expanding the type of information that we have available uh, to make it more accessible for folks um, in addition to that i would say my second runner up in terms of highest excitement is bringing on a contractor um, who is now working with me weekly on our program called We Love Consent, which seeks to help dismantle rape culture and build a consent culture within the electronic music and nightlife community. In addition to those two initiatives, we are also currently seeking out uh, a consultant who we are hoping to come in and do a full organizational audit and consultancy uh, to bring us further in line with our values in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think that is something that has definitely been called upon uh, on us as allies with all the struggles that we've seen in 2020 and obviously ever leading up until now. And now we have more time and space without outreach to really dedicate to be doing that deep work and committing that time that it'll take to um, implement the changes that are um, that the audit reveals. We also are just now having some beginning conversations at DanceSafe about what does it look like for us to create some programming regarding mental health. Mm. Uh, I personally have benefited so much from going to therapy myself for being in relationship with therapists, like having my friends that are therapists and getting introduced to this like whole new like set of terminology and vocabulary that has helped put words to my day in and day out experience of being human that has really helped me. And I see how we are a first touch point for a lot of individuals in the community. And I would really love to see us like deepen into what it means to promote health and safety within the electronic music and nightlife community, which includes investments in our mental health. And in that vein, part of the programming we want to develop around um, mental health includes what does it look like to maintain healthy relationships with substances? You know, at the end of the day, when we talk about uh, dependence on a substance, what's underneath all of that really is trauma. And what does it look like for DanceSafe to start being trauma-informed and having conversations with people that allow them to evaluate their relationship with substances and to create a space where we're able to pass the baton, where we may no longer be the appropriate organization for someone to be interfacing with, but to connect them with services in the event that they start developing less healthy relationships with substances and start developing a more problematic relationship with substances. And honestly, that's just to name a few. We've been really digging in and 
working our asses off to see what we can do to build up the internal infrastructure of DanceSafe so that when mass gatherings do come back in full swing, we are a stronger, better DanceSafe that can support our chapters, thus supporting our community. Amazing. Such important work. Mitchell, I got to bring you back into the conversation. Um, You know, this just... It's, this is something that I think about a lot, uh, just operating in dance music myself um, and, and building my career in this community. Uh, th- these underground communities want to, uh, and I mean, of course, electronic dance music has become incredibly uh, uh, mainstream now, but uh, it, it always seems to be this like this this community spirit of of looking after our group and um looking after you know our tribe so that we can um continue doing this thing you know that we do that we like love and appreciate i guess it's i i I just wonder like why is it the dance music community that is so often at the vanguard of this harm reduction movement is it the drugs is it the people like i don't know i just it's something that i think about and i'm wondering if you have a reflection on that well i mean so part of that is that uh, we, if that hasn't always been the case, right? So, uh, when Eman started DanceSafe, part of the reason that he started it was to sort of replicate what the needle exchanges had done, right? Where people would go out, they would give out clean needles to people who were, uh, using, uh, substances. They would get arrested for doing this. It was actually illegal to give out, you know, they were classed as drug paraphernalia, uh, they would get hauled in front of a jury. The juries would refuse to convict. And then they would go out and give out needles again. And they would sort of repeat this cycle until district attorneys finally pushed for the laws to change. Uh, and that's how needle exchanges became legal in this country was through direct action, like nonviolent civil disobedience. Uh, and so the plan with drug checking was not for him to start this nonprofit. His plan in some ways was to replicate what these needle exchanges had done to try to do this. But uh, the police had learned their lesson. And in 21 years, we've never had uh, anyone get arrested doing this. They've, they've learned that that's what we wanted. And so that's not what happens anymore. So really, we're building off of a movement that is, is uh, really sort of predicated on nonviolent direct action, uh, and so, yeah, that's that's part of it is that that's a perception that's really common within the music community because they're not hanging out with like the needle exchange people. Right. Uh, but that being said, uh, you know, these parties, when they started, you know, I, I, I came into the scene in the in the late 90s, uh, sort of mid to late 90s. I was very, very young. I mean, I was you know, 13, the first time I went to a rave. Uh, and I, I, I'll never forget, like, walking in up to this warehouse. I'd convinced some older friends to bring me and realizing that, like, the chain holding the door closed had been dremeled off. Like, somebody had brought, like, a sawzall, like a diamond blade sawzall. So this was clearly not, like, a permitted party, right? Like, they literally sawed the chain that held the door closed. And in a context like that, where the venue isn't necessarily legal, the party certainly isn't permitted, uh, the DIY, you know, take care of yourself ethos exists out of pure necessity, right? You can't call for medical services at an event where you've used a, a you know, a machine to cut open a wall of a building to get in. Uh, and so even though that's not what the events are by and large anymore, I mean, there are still underground events happening, um, you know, particularly desert parties are still really, really common in some parts of the country, 
that underlying ethos of like, we have to take care of ourselves. Otherwise this whole thing falls apart uh, still has remained really a large part of this community. Um, you know, you see it from the, the Burning Man community as well, which obviously has a lot of overlap uh, between, you know, the electronic music community and the, and the burner scene. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a big part of it is that this community grew out of a scene that was not able to depend on existing infrastructure. Uh, and so you had to bring your own generators to run the power, right? Because there was no way to get power other than bringing your generators. You had to make sure that you had people who knew how to do first aid to avoid people having to go to, you know, official medical services, which would then alert the authorities to this underground party happening. Uh, and so I think that's a big part of it is that we just, we've grown out of that. Uh, and that attitude has sort of been baked into the community, uh, and it's something I'm really, you know, personally grateful for. I really like that attitude. I'm really glad the first party I went to, I had to go to a gas station and ask for a green egg to get a phone number to call to get to, you know, like it wasn't like, just like I didn't get advertised on Facebook. Right. It was, it was a real process to get to this party. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a big part of why. You know, I, I'm thinking about the, the pandemic that we're in currently and all of the uh, daily harm reduction that we are called upon to do um is is the pandemic a potentially a vehicle to uh make people more aware of of harm reduction and uh even as it applies to um you know safer partying so yeah paul i would say that the pandemic certainly calls upon individuals to start engaging in what we refer to harm reduction or risk reduction. And I want to broaden that to say that I think one of the best things that may come out of the pandemic teaching our society is consent. Suddenly, there's a lot more dialogue that's taking place between individuals about what your status is, like when, who is in your household, do you work from home? Do they work from home? What kind of other people have you been seeing? Have you been to an outdoor dining situation, an indoor dining situation, that type of risk assessment that is taking place on a day-to-day basis when interacting with others, I think is a really important dialogue. And um, I think that the pandemic has also really pushed people to start to have to explore what does it look like to have boundaries to say I am only seeing individuals in my backyard with masks on in order to spend time with me I need to know that you've had a a negative COVID test within this amount of time I am currently only seeing friends online I have seen over time that Folks really struggle with defining what their personal boundaries are and holding their boundaries, um, how to accept a no. I think all of those are consent 101 skills that folks are having to practice more often on a day-to-day basis, which is one of the things I'm the most excited about. Mitchell, um, I would be curious to hear what you think in regards to the more harm risk reduction side of things. Yeah, so... I understand the question. I understand why it feels like that should be the case. Uh, The reality is everyone in society is already familiar with harm reduction. It's just not connected to substance use, right? Like everybody understands harm reduction when you talk about sunscreen or talk about condoms or talk about seatbelts or talk about speed limits or talk about, you know, fences around swimming pools. You know, these are all things that are sort of 
integrated into our society, both legally and ethically, um, and our sort of core harm reduction. And so those things are already, everybody gets harm reduction. It's just connecting it to substance use is really difficult when you're swimming upstream against 50 years and several billion dollars of government-sponsored propaganda. Uh, and so that's really where the disconnect is. And so I, I understand that question, but I'm also a little skeptical of the idea that we would be able to like broadly connect those things in the popular consciousness, uh, just because the, the, you know, there have been studies that have shown that no matter how much the government spends on drug war commercials, it does not influence uh, drug usage rates, right? Like it literally doesn't matter. They can spend a billion dollars or $1 and it doesn't change people's consumption behaviors you know, within a, you know, statistically significant margin in any study that's ever been done. And so the question comes up, like, why do we spend all of this money on drug war commercials if they don't do anything? And the answer is that they do do something. What they do is frame the debate for our society. They frame drug use for our culture as there is only one type of drug use in the popular imagination, and that is problematic addiction, right? And like in the harm reduction community, we're trying to even move away from the word addiction and addict, but that's how it's framed by the propagandists. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what drug war advertising is. It's, it's a, a, a way of framing the conversation that removes substance use from the broader harm reduction conversations that all of us take part in all the time. Uh, and so it's fun finding those areas where you can uh, sort of push the boundaries to connect those things in people's minds, right? So like giving out safer snorting implements uh, and making sure that they're like right next to condoms on the, on the dance safe table uh, is a really good way to like connect these things, right? Because your nose is a bodily orifice with a mucous membrane. Uh, sharing a straw or a bill with somebody is, is biologically very, very close to having unprotected sex with them. Uh, and so by connecting those things in people's minds, suddenly now, oh, like, oh, now straws make sense, right? Like now giving out clean straws makes sense. And it's like, okay, well, like, let's also talk about needles, right? Even if you're not somebody who uses in, uh, injectable substances or uses substances in that, it, you know, uses that ROA, uh, it's very easy to connect it now with that. And, and drug checking is another one of those things, right? Like we have the equivalent of drug checking for our food in every Western democracy. And it is funded by the government. <laughs> it is legally mandated. You know, when you buy 2% milk, you know, with a hundred percent certainty that it is 2% milk. It is not 2.3% milk. There is processes in place to protect even that minor level of misrepresentation within the food markets. And so why should the drug markets be any different, right? We should have that same level of control over drug markets that we do over food markets. Um, you know, the goal of every nonprofit is to put itself out of business. But the real irony for DanceSafe is that most of what we do should be done by county health departments. You should be able to take your drugs to any county health department, get your drugs chemically analyzed, or just buy them in a regulated marketplace. And then there's no need for drug checking, right? If you can access drugs through a regulated marketplace, if you get your cocaine at the cocaine store, um, you know, we could have fair market free trade organic co cocaine of known purity in six weeks if we just ended prohibition and created regulated marketplaces. Like the only thing stopping that is the government. Well, I think that's a great segue into talking about the American election. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, former Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau once said that uh, living next door to the United States is like sleeping with an elephant. 
So we are preparing for those, uh, you know, vibrations in the bed right now. And I'm curious about some of the outcomes that you are preparing for as, as dance safe. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple things here. Uh, I think the most important thing to acknowledge and to name right off the bat is that the drug war has been a bipartisan program f- since its inception, right? The, the drug war has had broad bipartisan support from both major political parties for the entirety of its existence. And that it is entirely unfair to ignore or gloss over that history. Right. Joe Biden was the architect of the crime bill. He wrote the Rave Act. He is he wrote or co-wrote or sponsored a lot of the laws that have resulted in mass incarceration, the expansion of the drug war, the expansion of the police state. Uh, And so I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, the last four years have been such a nightmare in terms of the federal government in a lot of ways, right? It's been a really, really tough four years for a lot of people. And so I think for a lot of people, a return to normalcy feels like enough. Uh, but for me, a return to normalcy is is nowhere near what we should be aiming for, right? Mass incarceration has to end. This is not debatable. It has to end. Uh, you know, we have to deal with uh, the fact that the Fourth Amendment has now been eroded to the point that it is functionally meaningless, right? Drug dogs are less accurate than a coin flip. They're wrong more than 50% of the time. The fact that police can search you based on a drug dog's indication is more of a civil rights violation than if the police were allowed to flip a quarter, right? If they could flip a quarter and decide based on that, that would be less of a Fourth Amendment violation, statistically. Uh, Oh, uh, And so, yeah, I think that it's just important to acknowledge that. Now, that being said, uh, Joe Biden has talked a very good game about uh, recognizing the wrongs of some of his legislative proposals in the past. Uh, You know, some of the people on his transition team are uh, really from the reform community. Uh, And so I'm hopeful that we can see progress, but it is going to require a lot of work, a lot of organization, a lot of direct action. Uh, And realistically, I have a hard time imagining ending the drug war other than through mass civil disobedience. Um, I don't, this is like any other civil rights fight. You don't just show up and ask nicely. That's not how civil rights have progressed anywhere in the world. Uh, And so while I'm very hopeful for uh, some small return to sanity on some things, when it comes to the drug war, uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us. And I was saying this a year ago when Joe Biden announced his candidacy. I assumed from the very beginning he would get the nomination. Um, I assume from the very beginning, it would be a very, very close race, much closer than anyone was anticipating. Uh, And uh, all of my predictions came true, uh, including my suspicion that Trump would not go quietly into the good night. And so, uh, yeah, I think that I've been preparing for a while now to have a lot of work ahead of us for the next four to eight years to try to force things in the in the right direction. There were some interesting uh, things on the ballot in the United States. I mean, we don't get to vote on things like decriminalizing mushrooms, like uh, psilocybin mushrooms uh, (laughs) on a regular basis. But I I know that in the U.S. there were some interesting uh, legalization measures on the ballot in certain areas. Uh, Is there anything that you are uh, pleased with or intrigued by from those results? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think the Oregon... uh you know, decriminalization measure is a huge step in the right direction. Uh, 
I, I often worry that people think decriminalization is the end goal. And to me, it's not. Uh, decriminalization without creating, creating a legal regulated supply uh, does not fix the issues of misrepresentation and adulteration. Right. So people who are dying from fentanyl adulteration or dying from, you know, outright misrepresentation, you know, things like APVP being sold as MDMA or cocaine, uh, those problems do not go away with legalization or with decriminalization. And in some ways they may get worse. Right. Some of these problems may get worse as people feel less concern about personal possession. Uh, people who maybe were not entering drug markets are now entering them. Don't understand that you are not buying this from a you know, it's not like it, you know, it's not like buying a craft beer from your local brewery. It's buying you know alcohol in 1929 <laughs> when 30,000 Americans were going to the hospital every year from methanol poisoning. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that. I think that we do need to keep the bigger goal in mind, which to me is is legalization. It's the creation of legal marketplaces. Um, and there's a galaxy of regulatory possibilities. I am not saying, you know, necessarily that we should sell heroin, cocaine, MDMA at 7-Eleven. Uh, I do genuinely believe that selling them at 7-Eleven would result in less problems than what we're doing now. Um, I think that would be a better situation than what we have now. Uh, but I recognize that there are a lot of different substances out there with different risks and that it's appropriate to have different regulatory structures for different substances. Uh, you know, Rick Doblin from MAPS is a big fan of the idea of like a licensing process for a lot of drugs, right? So like the first three times you took LSD, you'd have to go do it like in a, a structured setting where there are psychotherapists on hand for people who have difficult you know, difficult experiences. And then you would get your LSD license and you could buy and use LSD at home. Uh, you know, and so that's like one regulatory model. Switzerland has a heroin maintenance program where people who are dependent on opioids can get heroin from their doctor, uh, not with the goal of weaning them off, not with the goal of forcing them to quit, just to, so that they don't have to access heroin from the black market. Uh, and they have never had anyone die in that program. Nobody has ever died from that because heroin is dangerous in part or in large part, almost entirely because people don't know how strong the substance is and of adulteration. And without those two issues, it becomes much, much, much safer to use these drugs. Um, amazing. I mean, I, I love speaking with both of you. Um, it's a great and I, I wish I could come and see you in person right now. But this has been really, really fun to, to connect with you and, and talk about this topic. It's something that I'm so interested in and I rarely get a chance to speak to people about, especially right now. And I think I've spoke to two of the best people I could speak to on this topic. So yeah, I really appreciate your time. And uh, if I have any follow-up questions, I'll, I'll hit you up. was my conversation with Dance Safe's Executive Director, Mitchell Gomez, and Director of Operations, Kristen Karras. Learn more about Dance Safe and support their work by visiting dancesafe.org. Since my conversation with Mitchell and Kristen, I've been reflecting on the current of activism that runs through electronic dance music. I have privileges because of the work of the rave elders who came before me, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. 
90.9 FM, CJSW. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary, and we just heard my conversation with Kristen Karras and Mitchell Gomez originally broadcast in December 2020, but I wanted to bring that one back. And I'm going to be covering harm reduction a lot on episodes coming up on Rave Dad's Diary. Episode 18 of Rave Dad's Diary is coming to a close. The show is produced and hosted by me, Paul Brooks. Thank you very much for tuning in today. I'll be back with a brand new episode next week. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, listen back to the whole series on Apple Podcasts or at CJSW.com. You can always drop me a line, ravedad at CJSW.com. Stay safe, and we'll see you again next week.
with a bull, young man. You'll get the horn. Eaty, eaty, eaty. Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back. You teach him to watch television. Dig out your Akajo windbreaker and lime green leg warmers because this episode of the Reference Desk is hitting the 80s. I'm your host, Andrew Baldock, and if you've never heard an episode of the Reference Desk before, this is a wandering feature dedicated to digging through the CJSW library and finding strange albums, odd singles, and artists of especially curious note. Today, I've pulled out an old vinyl record bearing the face of none other than 80s cultural icon, Max Headroom. Great. If you see me, give me a wave. I love to see style. The album I speak of is a vinyl 12-inch single of Paranoimia by Art of Noise, an avant-garde synth-pop group formed in 1983 by somewhat of a ragtag group consisting of group founders Gary Langan, an engineer, and J.J. Jesselik, a programmer. They were joined by arranger Ann Dudley, producer Trevor Horn, and Paul Morley, a journalist who's written for NME, Blitz Magazine, and, as an interesting aside, Paul is credited as being instrumental in the marketing and promotion of Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who was on his record label, ZTT Records. So let's take a look at this record. The album art just screams 1980s, with colorful circles creating borders on the cover's left and right sides. A woman's hand bearing brown nail polish holds up what looks like a small TV, but could just be a black-bordered picture, bearing the face of Max Headroom and his famed backdrop. Now, there's not many Max Headroom references in modern media, so here's a quick history lesson for you youngins out there. Max Headroom was a character portrayed by actor Matt Frewer. He originally appeared in the British cyberpunk TV movie Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future. The success of the movie would lead to the character becoming a VJ on The Max Headroom Show, where the character would host between music videos. The final spinoff for the character was an American drama series simply titled Max Headroom. Max Headroom, the complete series. What kind of sh- sh- show is this, anyway? Now, Max was billed as the first ever computer-generated TV host. But because of that kind of tech wasn't actually available in the 80s, Matt Frewer was given his uncanny valley-inducing appearance through makeup and prosthetics. Prep for going on camera took a whopping four and a half hours. Frewer described the process as grueling and not fun, describing it as like being on the inside of a tennis ball. So why is Max on the cover? Well, a version of the song appearing only on this single release features him on vocals. Interestingly, there are two versions of the song with Max's vocals. One features Max acting as a master of ceremonies and introducing various celebrities as musicians on the song, even though they aren't. Like Peter O'Toole on trumpet, even though there isn't even any trumpet on the track. Tennis player Martina Navratilova on bass, Cher on vocals, and The Pope on drums. This version I have here features Max talking about...